I was in college when I first heard the famous pineapple story. How many of you have heard the famous pineapple story? Maybe it's not as famous as I thought. <laughs> I'm going to tell you this story. It was told by a missionary named Otto Koning, and uh, it was made into a a uh, children's book, a cute book for kids. It's got a great lesson. The, the way I heard the story was like this. A number of years ago, some missionaries named Otto and Carol Koning moved to New Guinea and started their work there among a fairly primitive tribe of native people who really had only known the ways of their own village and their own people. Unbeknownst to the Konings, one of those ways was about to put them to the test. When they arrived, they moved into a little hut, and the native people would often come by to visit with them, and the Konings started to notice something. They noticed that after the natives would leave, various household items would turn up missing. Then when they, they would go and visit the villagers, they would see those same items gracing the little huts of their new neighbors. So let's just say they were a bit disturbed by this. One year, Otto decided to plant a garden. He soon discovered that the only fruit that seemed to grow on the island was pineapples, but that was okay because Otto loved pineapples, and he took great pride in the pineapples that grew in his garden. However, when the pineapples began to ripen, the natives would sneak into his garden at night and in the, under the cover of darkness would steal his pineapples. Otto could never manage to keep even one single ripe pineapple for himself. Pretty soon, his annoyance grew into full-fledged anger. The more the natives stole, the angrier Otto became. All of his efforts to keep his garden safe and protected from the thieves proved to be futile. He even had a German shepherd flown in from another place to try and protect his beloved pineapples. But that just served to alienate the very people he was trying to reach. Well, one summer, Otto took a furlough to the United States and while here, he attended a conference, and the conference speaker talked about the power of yielding our rights to God. It dawned on Otto that he was frustrated with his situation back in New Guinea because he had been claiming ownership of his pineapple garden. After all, he had planted it. It was his garden. But the message struck home. After much soul-searching, Otto decided that he needed to give his pineapple garden to God. So he returned to New Guinea with a new mindset, that his garden of pineapples was no longer his. It didn't belong to him anymore. It belonged to God's. It was God's garden. And if God wanted his pineapples stolen by the neighbors and eaten, then so be it. But if God wanted his pineapples protected, well then, God would have to do it. Otto was done trying to do it himself. When Otto gave his garden over to God, something very interesting happened. He found that he was no longer getting so angry at the natives for stealing the pineapples. He stopped scolding them whenever he saw them. Plus, he was no longer up at night worrying about it. It was God's problem now because it was God's garden. Otto was surprised to see that his heart was no longer anxious and upset all the time. He was now actually able to rest and be at peace. It wasn't long after that the natives began having some serious problems in their village. One of them suggested to the others 
that it might be because they had been taking the missionaries' pineapples. Word got back to Otto about that, and he went and told the people that he had given his garden to God, and so the pineapples were now owned by God and not him. So, if they continued in their ways, they would be stealing God's pineapples. The natives started to associate this with all the calamities that had been occurring in their village, so they made a decision. They decided to return the fruit that they had taken from the garden because they didn't want any more harm to come to them. One day, the light came on for Otto. A villager came up to him and said, Otto, you must have become a Christian. You don't get angry anymore. We always wondered if we would ever meet a Christian. They had never associated Otto with the kind of person he was preaching about because his life didn't line up with his message. Well, as you can imagine, Otto was broken in spirit when he realized that he had been such a failure. For the first seven years of his missionary work there in that village, he had seen exactly zero converts to Christianity. But now, after giving his pineapple garden to God, he finally was able to witness the very first person putting their faith and trust in Jesus. And soon thereafter, many others followed. After seven years of complete barrenness in his ministry, his village became the most evangelized village in the whole region. Through this experience, Otto Koning came to realize something that it would be good if all of us realized. It was only when he gave his possessions up to God that he became free from the grip that they had on him. It was only when he yielded his right of ownership to the Lord that his anger began to melt away. It was only when he let go of control that God's life was able to shine through him to other people. And when I heard this story, he finished it out by giving this quote from another missionary named Jim Elliott. Maybe you've heard it. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And that's the pineapple story. Well, as I said, this is the final week in this series on the upside-down kingdom of God, and a number of you have told me or sent me emails saying how, how this has helped you in your walk with Christ and changed some ways that you've been thinking about things. In this study, we've seen that Jesus came bringing a message, a message of good, do, of good news. The good news that a new government was breaking into our world, the government of God. We know it as the kingdom of God. And the people who enter this kingdom by faith are called to live their lives under the kingship, under the kingship of King Jesus himself, and, and let their lifestyle be guided by the laws of this new kingdom, these governing principles or royal policies of the kingdom of God. And, and they can seem quite different from how things normally work in the kingdoms of this earth. So far, we've looked at three of these kingdom laws. The first, first one you might remember, death is the pathway to life. Remember that? We must die in order to really live, to really have God's life in us. God will take us through these experiences that feel like death in order to raise up new life on the other side of those experiences. Dying to live, that was the first one. And then remember, the way up is down. The way up is down. The low road of humility is, 
is the pathway to honor and exaltation in the kingdom of God. God exalts the humble, it says, and he brings down the proud. And so servanthood is the key to true greatness in God's kingdom. And then last weekend, uh, Alan helped us understand that the first shall be last and the last shall be first in the kingdom of God. So pushing other people ahead of ourselves is what our king calls us to and what he modeled for us. And this includes seeing other people, seeing them with God's lenses on, seeing them the way he sees them, valuing the people that our society marginalizes. And Alan taught us that in that culture, that first century culture, children were not highly valued and often were viewed as mere property, but we saw that Jesus welcomed the little ones, didn't he? He taught us that only becoming childlike in faith will grown-ups be able to experience his kingdom. And we were given a great picture of that as our own children here led us in musical worship. And what a great time that was. And yes, we will do that again. We will. Well, here's the fourth and final kingdom law that we're going to look at. And there are many more, but let's look at this one. And again, it's going to feel kind of out of sync, out of step with our culture, upside down, really. I really didn't know much about this one until I heard the pineapple story. And that shed some light on it. So here it is. Kingdom law number four. We gain by losing. Lose in order to gain. Or said another way, we must release in order to obtain. We must relinquish in order to acquire. We must give up in order to gain more. You with me on this? We must let go of what we think we need in order to have more of what God knows that we need. It's only through losing our lives that we gain true life in God. Well, when he was here, Jesus Christ taught this kingdom law many times. And the passage I want to point out here is in Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 34. And it reads like this. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. The word deny there literally means disown. Give up ownership claim to his own life, if you want to follow me. He must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his own soul? So Jesus was saying, do you want to gain life? Then lose yours. Give up to gain more. Release to obtain. He was saying, in my kingdom, you gain by losing. Which sounds weird. <laughs> like the math doesn't work out there, right? It's all over scripture, though. The great apostle Paul also taught this principle. Listen to this passage from Philippians chapter 3, verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. That's relationship language, isn't it? For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish 
You do not want to know what that word means in the original language. Nasty stuff. I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. So there it is again. Lose all things to gain Christ. Give up to gain more. It's a kingdom principle. Now I think there are two keys to really grasping this and really understanding this principle as it's taught in Scripture. And and here's the first thing, and it's a perspective. The Bible urges us, when it comes to this loss-is-gain thing, to take the long view, the long view of things. Loss-is-gain means lose the temporary in order to gain the eternal. Does that make sense? Taking the long view of things, and then also taking the spiritual perspective of things. Loss is gain means losing the material in order to gain the spiritual. I think this losing to gain principle has been abused by some preachers. Turn on your television to a religious station. You're likely to hear any number of preachers talk about how you, you should release your grip on your money, on your material resources, right? Usually they're saying, and give it to me. Release it, and God will give you more material things here and now in this life. It's a common message. And while that can happen, and sometimes does happen, that view is far too limiting in its scope. It's too narrow, too short-sighted compared to what the Bible presents and how the Bible talks about this kingdom law. Sometimes the gain we will experience is not material, sometimes it's spiritual. And sometimes the gain we experience will not be here and now in this life, but will be in the next life, in eternity. Scripture urges us to have the longer view and the spiritual view. Does this make sense? I don't want to come across like an expert on this, because I'm not, and if I'm honest, I'd have to say I've been discipled by our culture, our materialistic consumer culture, more than I really care to admit. But I do have a desire to live this way, and I know a lot of you do as well, to live this kingdom way. There's freedom here. There's life here. And that's what our king wants for those of us who are in his royal family. And so with that in mind, I want to point out four areas of life, okay? Four areas of life where this principle, this kingdom law, this losing to gain principle can be applied probably every day. And together they form a a big challenge for us. All right? So number one, how does this flesh out? How does this work? Well, number one, lose your rights and gain greater likeness to Jesus. And freedom from anger. Lose your rights. Wasn't that a key point in the pineapple story? After Otto had given his garden over to God and stopped trying to act like it was all his, the villagers came to him and said, Hey, did you become a Christian? (laughs) You must have, because now we're seeing in you the kind of person that you've been preaching to us about. We're seeing Jesus in you now. Now that you've relinquished your rights. 
Philippians 2.5 says it so well, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Embrace his mindset. Verse 6, who being in very nature, what does it say? God. If you've ever wondered if the Bible teaches clearly that Jesus is God, right there. Who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God or his, his divine lifestyle, you could call it, something to be grasped, clutched, held onto at all costs. But he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. Jesus gave up his rights in order to come here. Amen? And we're called to do the same. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And Jesus actually had real rights. <laughs> Unlike some of the rights we think we're entitled to. Could I just mention some of the things we too often think that we have a right to, and I'm including myself here, but I suspect I'm not alone. How about, I've got the right to an easy, pain-free life. Sounds pretty good, huh? I have the right to have the picture-perfect Facebook life that other people seem to have when I look at their page. I have the right to that. I have the right to live the American dream. And anybody who gets in my way is going to get an earful. How about this? The right to have my way. The right to have my agenda. The right to be free from anyone telling me how to live my life. I've got the right to be respected. Doggone it. Around here. The right to be right. To win. To come out on top. How about this? I've got the right to have a perfect spouse and perfect kids and be in a perfect church. I've got a right to have friends who are loyal to me and who never disappoint me or let me down. I've got the right to control my environment and my surroundings and what other people think. I've got the right to determine my own future. We live in a rights-based culture, wouldn't you agree? Translated entitlement. We live in an entitlement culture, and as a result, we live in an angry culture. And some of you have been around for 60, 70, 80 years. Can you remember a time where people were so hostile and angry? Just like Otto, people are ticked off that others are constantly violating their perceived rights. We're blocking their way, standing in their way from achieving them. I don't think there's any greater cause of widespread rage in our land right now than this, people believing they're not getting what they deserve, what they think they have a right to. And they're angry. So here's an insight or an axiom that I believe holds true. It's undergirded in Scripture. Anger is usually... The result of claiming rights that you perceive have been violated. Isn't that true? I mean, honest, let's get on. Maybe 90% of our anger. I mean, we do have some righteous indignation at times. But wouldn't you agree about 90% of our anger is this? I got a right to this, and you're not treating me the way I think I should be treated. Lots of anger. 
And so I want to ask, what if God's people, what if the born-again citizens of this upside-down kingdom of God all started to follow in the steps of our king and let go of our rights? Could that make a difference in here? Could it make a difference out there? Would there be any impact if the people of God decided that they were going to follow in the footsteps of Jesus and relinquish their rights to God? What if we began to sincerely pray the scary prayer of surrender? You say, what's that? Well, it could sound like this. Lord God Almighty, today, today, this day, I am yielding all of my rights to you. I'm saying goodbye to my so-called right to govern my own life. I'm yours now. I'm surrendering to you my right to have an easy life, to be in control, to have other people serve me and make me happy all the time. I release my right to have a sinless spouse who always does everything I want and caters to my every need. I release my right to have perfect kids who always make me proud, never embarrass me. I release my right to have awesome friends who never disappoint me. I release my so-called right to have a great boss who daily recognizes my stellar contribution to our organization. I'm also relinquishing my ownership of all of my possessions to you, God, including fill in the blank. What's that possession that you clutch most tightly to? I'm yielding those to you, to use as you see fit. It is all yours. Plus, I'm letting go of my right to have the future I've always dreamed of having. I give it all over to you, God. I am tired of being chronically frustrated and angry all the time that people are trampling on my rights. So I'm giving up my rights. Oh God, please melt away my anger. Make me more like King Jesus in this way. I ask this by faith in his holy name, amen. That's the scary prayer of surrender. Especially scary for control freaks. All this talk of relinquishing and releasing and giving up and taking my hands off the wheel. Here's the message. Give your pineapples to God. Transfer ownership from self to him. Lose your rights in order to gain more likeness to King Jesus and also to gain peace of mind and freedom from anger. Wouldn't that be great? For those of you who are constantly frustrated, constantly miffed, constantly angry, this is key. Letting go of rights, relinquishing them, opening our hands and saying, it's yours. All right, the next one here. Many of us need to hear this next one. Not only lose your rights to gain more likeness to Jesus. Number two, lose your reputation. Now, I'll explain that. I don't mean go out and do something foolish. (laughs) Lose your reputation and gain freedom to gladly glorify God and gain sweet release from image management, which is exhausting. That verse we read earlier in Philippians, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Verse 7, but made himself nothing. Now, I memorized that verse in the King James Version of the Bible, 
And in that version, it reads like this. He made himself of no reputation. Jesus made himself of no reputation. It means that Jesus gave up claim to owning what people thought of him. He put that in God's hands. That's what I mean by losing your reputation. Giving it to God. This, oh, how I struggled with this as a young adult. I don't know. For whatever reason, my genes, my German blood, my pride, my upbringing, my insecurity as a shy, skinny little kid, always a year younger than always all of my classmates, always feeling like I needed to somehow prove that I belonged, never having fully surrendered my whole self to God. I was a guy. I'll be Alan. Is this a safe place? Can I? I was a guy who was fairly obsessed with what other people thought of me. Am I the only one? Who said yes? Who said that? I so wanted to be highly regarded by certain people that I would go to great lengths to make it happen, to make sure they understood how good I was at this or at that and were pretty impressed with me. For many years, I was embarrassing to even talk about that, but I've come to realize this is part of my story. This is part of my God story. And that was who I was. That was who I was until... The Lord showed me my heart, my proud and sinful heart and the ugliness of it one day. And the Lord started to go to work to extract all of that self-focus out of my heart. I felt so convicted. I still remember the day that I gave my reputation over to God. It's huge for me. I remember praying, oh God, please forgive me. Self-promotion is so wicked. Plus, I'm worn out. I'm worn out from constantly trying to control what other people think about me. and Keep my image polished all the time and put my my best foot forward and my best face on things. It's exhausting and it's not working. I remember saying, so I'm here to tell you, I'm done with that. I'm done. What people think of me, I'm putting in your hands. I'm going to concern myself with that no longer beginning today. You do it. You do it. You you form my reputation in the minds of other people because I'm done. And it was a liberating moment for me. It was unlike anything I had experienced up to that point. Freedom! Freedom! Freedom, freedom to focus on God, freedom to pursue God's agenda for my life. Freedom to let other people think whatever whatever other people were going to think. So I become a crusader for this. And I will look at you and say, for God's sake and for your sake, give your reputation to God. Release it to Him. Let it go. He'll he'll do a better job than you will anyway of shaping your reputation in other people's minds. It's a heavy yoke to walk around every day and live your life that way. 
with that yoke removed by Jesus and gone, you'll have a lot more energy to focus on the things and give your life to the things that are really important, that really matter. I'm certain of it. I've lived it. So lose your reputation. Let it go. Give it to God. Third, lose your resources. Your rights, your reputation, your resources. Lose that and gain a greater harvest. So yes, TV preachers notwithstanding, there is a legitimate call of God to his people to loosen our grip and let go of our material resources, for sure. There is an opening of the hands and a releasing of our money and possessions. And on paper, it looks like loss. And it can feel like loss. But you know what? Kingdom people don't just operate, operate by what makes sense on paper. We live by faith, not by sight. And so God's kingdom people release their resources and then count on God to turn it into ultimate gain, to return it to them multiplied in the way He sees fit, in the time He sees fit. It's all over the New Testament. I selected one passage here that I want to reinforce this principle even more with the apostle paul again from second corinthians 9 verse 6 remember he's talking to a bunch of farmers a bunch of agricultural people verse 6 the point is this <laughs> would you like that here's the point whoever sows that seed he's talking about whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And, here's the gain part of it, God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Verse 10, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase, here it is, the harvest of your righteousness. That's interesting. That's spiritual, right? Sow material, reap spiritual. You will be enriched in every way. Spiritual, material, financial, psychological to be generous in every way which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. In other words, loss is actually gain. Release your resources into God's work, sow lots of seed, and watch God provide a harvest of what you need financially, spiritually, in this life, yes. Definitely in heaven, let's not lose sight of eternity here. Let's not lose sight of laying up for yourselves treasure in heaven and being rich towards God, as it says in the, in the word. Give up here to gain more there. 
So look, as as citizens of this kingdom, of this upside-down kingdom of Jesus, we're called to open our hearts and our hands and then watch God fill them up again. But if your fists are always clenched, tight, you won't be in a position to receive what God has for you. He wants to fill our empty hands. So do you see how this kingdom law applies to us? By losing certain things, by letting them go, releasing them to God, we actually gain something better. Relinquish your rights, gain more likeness to Jesus and more freedom from anger. Let go of your reputation, give it to God, gain freedom to focus more on glorifying Him instead of compulsively trying to manage your image all the time. Gain peace of mind. And then here, release control of your resources, open your hand, sow seeds into the kingdom of God, and watch God show Himself to be your source and your supplier in a whole new way. Give it all up to God. Let it go. Release it. Transfer ownership of everything to God and watch Him work with it. That's life in this upside-down kingdom of God. Now, I couldn't overlook this last one because it's so central to the gospel message that we, we love and cherish around here. So number four, the last one we'll talk about. Lose your religious righteousness to gain a real relationship with God. It's another way this losing to gain principle fleshes out. Lose your religious righteousness to gain a real relationship with God. Lose your righteousness to gain a relationship. We like to say Christianity is not so much a religion as it is a relationship with God. That Philippians passage again, remember this? Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing. That's relationship language, right? Covenant love language. Knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I've suffered the loss of all things. Count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Listen, and be found in Him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, we call that religious rule-keeping, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, verse 10, that I may know Him. Somebody asked, what is eternal life? What is eternal life? Isn't it the life of knowing God? Isn't that what Jesus said in John 17? What is eternal life? This is eternal life, to know you, the only true God, and your Son, whom you sent. Eternal life is a quantity of life, yes, life that lasts forever, but it's also a quality of life. It's a life of knowing God, being in covenant relationship with God. And how does one gain eternal life? Think about that. How does a person like you or me who have done some awful things, enter into relationship with a God who is holy. Now, first off, it ought to just blow our minds that God even wants that. That that God would desire a close, personal, authentic, deep, 
eternal re relationship with sinful people. But the Bible states in many places that he does. So how in the world can this impossible, seemingly impossible thing happen? I really like talking with people about this. I'm not sure anything is more important, and I like talking with people about important things. How can you be in a relationship with a holy God? Well, let me say this. It can only happen on his terms. Some people have kind of this cavalier attitude about God. You know, it's like, you know, I can connect with the big guy when I want to. This relationship is on his terms. And he has disclosed what his terms are. And his terms are this. If you want to have a relationship with God, you have to possess something. You have to have something. You know what it is? Righteousness. You must have righteousness. You have to be righteous like he is. If you're going to relate to God, come near to him, enter his presence, be in relationship with him, you must have righteousness. So either you have to have your own righteousness, you have to live a perfect life in thought, word, inclination, and deed your entire life. Good luck with that. We call that being on the performance plan. Lots of people, that's their plan. The performance plan to try and be good enough for God. There's nothing wrong with trying to be your best. There's nothing wrong at all with trying to be your best. But if you're relying on that to get you into a relationship with God, that's a grave error. Nowhere does the Bible say that God grades on the curve. Or I like to say it this way. Heaven is not a good place for good people. It's a perfect place for perfect people. People with a spotless record of righteousness. Lifelong, perfect obedience. So that's one plan, the performance plan, relying on your own righteousness, but there is another plan. And many people see the wisdom in shifting. This plan calls for losing your own righteousness, humbling yourself and forsaking that, and instead acquiring someone else's perfect record of righteous living, if there is such a person, that someone, if he exists, would have to be willing to exchange his perfect record of righteousness for your very imperfect one and offer his to you as a gift. To give you the righteousness he earned by his perfect life while taking your and my imperfect record. The Bible says there is such a person. Paul knew it here. It is Jesus Christ, our Lord, right? Who came to this earth, lived the life we could not live, died the death we should have died, and then conquered the foe that no one can conquer. That's death. And he conquered that foe. He died in our place, rose again. He paid for our sins. And now as the risen king, he offers his record of perfect righteousness to all who will put their full trust in him. And people who do that, who opt for that, who are humble enough to receive as a gift the righteousness of Christ, are on a plan that we like to call the grace plan. There's a performance plan and the grace plan. 
Your own righteousness, Jesus' righteousness. Earn it, gift. See the difference? It's huge. How can you have a relationship with God? Simple terms, you must lose your own righteousness in order to gain that of Christ. And I want to be very clear, the righteous record of Jesus is the only record that God the Father will accept on Judgment Day. And gaining that is the only way anyone can know the one true God. Losing your own righteousness and in so doing, gaining a relationship with God. That's being a, becoming a Christian, basically. Receiving by faith the gift that God offers of His Son's perfect record and giving Him your blemished record that Jesus took on Himself. So loss is gain. So there you have it. The weird... Upside down policies of the new government of God that Jesus brought. Die to live, go down to go up. Servanthood is the path to greatness. The last will be first. Lose in order to gain. This is the way of Christ. This is life in this fascinating upside down kingdom of God. Lose in order to gain. I wonder, have you ever thought about how this principle is played out in your life? Have you ever had an experience of losing something and then seeing God return it to you later? I'll bet if you thought about it, you could, you could have, you've had an experience like that. But beyond that, let me ask you to think for a moment about what Jesus might be calling you to let go of today through His Spirit speaking to you. What might Jesus be calling you to let go of in order to be able to receive what he has for you? Is it your rights? You know, when people, I talk to people about this, what, what right does Jesus want me to yield to him? I always talk about, well, what are you most angry about? If you can identify what it is that ticks you off the most, there's a right underneath that, something you're clutching to pretty tightly that's the thing Jesus is likely calling you to release to him and say, it's yours, it's yours. Is he calling you to let go of a right today or your reputation, what others think about you or your resources, your possessions, or your own righteousness? Is he calling you to forsake your own righteousness and receive his by faith? That's becoming a Christian. I want you to take a quiet moment and just identify that. What is it that Jesus is calling you to relinquish today? Would you take a moment and just think about that? Now give it over to God. Give it to God. It's yours. Done. Let it go. Trust him with it. He's going to handle it better anyway. He's a better owner. And then watch him work to return it to you in his way and in his time. Father, thank you for this series. Thank you for the way you've used it in my life. Some of these things I already knew and I needed a refresher, but I mean, you've taken me back to some earlier seasons of my life where you did.
did a work in me and you impressed a truth of your kingdom on my heart and it changed me. I pray, Lord, if there's any in this room who have never received that gift, who've never shifted from the performance plan to the grace plan, that you would give them the ability to do that right now, to just lose their righteousness and receive yours by faith and to cry out to you, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord, I pray that your people here would grow in this, that we would represent you well as we walk through our days and rub shoulders with people who are immersed in the kingdoms of this earth. I pray they'd see a difference in us, something that would be appealing, something that would be winsome to them because we want them to know you too. Thank you for this way that you have given us. Empower us to live it through your spirit, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.